Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, uh, we're going to call this show The Making of a Feminist. Now, uh, if you know anything about the literary critic Helene Moglen, and if you don't, just take my word for it, it is hard to picture her ever having shared any of the male-centric assumptions of old-school English departments. But there was a time. A female colleague of mine said she was going to teach a course on women's literature. And I said to her, why would you do that? Who is it you're going to teach? Mind you, this was the 1960s. Everything was changing fast. And soon Helene was swept up in the women's movement. Feminism uh, put society in a whole new light, and literature too. And it wasn't just about recognizing neglected women writers. It was coming to see how sexual politics and the complexities of gender were shaping a lot of the stories that we tell about ourselves. Even the classics, even the ones by men, about men. It was really a change of worldview to a degree that I think is difficult for many of us today, including me, to fully appreciate. And uh, one reason I wanted Helene on the show is that she was there for this whole massive cultural shift. She was a part of it. Her career as a scholar and activist and academic spans uh, the before, during, and after of what we now call second wave feminism. She did her undergrad and graduate work in the late 1950s and early 60s, and then taught at New York University and the State University of New York through the 1970s. And then she came out west to UC Santa Cruz in 1978. She was appointed professor of literature and dean of humanities and arts. Uh, She was, in fact, the very first female dean in the whole University of California system. And uh, she also was a college provost and chair of women's studies at UCSC for some years. She's currently uh, an emerita professor of literature and feminist studies. Well, I was uh, very happy to sit down with Helene Moglen this past week to learn more about her career, her life, and her ideas. Stay tuned. Helene, thank you for doing this. Pleasure. Love talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I think I mentioned when we were setting up this interview that I actually met you years ago. I was doing a brief teaching stint at UC Santa Cruz, where you were a professor at the time of literature. I mean, you still are. And I saw you lecture on uh, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. Mm. And I was so interested in the lecture that I trailed you out of the lecture hall asking you questions. Um, it's taken me a little while to get around to asking you onto the show for an interview. Was I, was I pleasant? Oh, yeah, you were very pleasant, absolutely. <laughs> but um, having seen you more recently giving another lecture, I thought, I bet you had, had an interesting life, along with having a lot of interesting <laughs> ideas. So that's why I invited you. And uh, in a very uncreative way, I'd like to start at the beginning. Hmm? Where are you from? I'm from Brooklyn, New York, born in 1936. What was the milieu there for you? Well, I, I grew up in a, in a family that started out as working class. My father was a self-educated man um, who became increasingly middle class as I grew up. He had two daughters, always wanted a son, and in some ways I guess I became the son he wanted. He was enormously ambitious for me and believed at a time when many fathers didn't believe that, uh, that I could do anything I wanted. So he was enormously supportive. Uh, I wrote poetry uh, in grammar school. My father uh, had a life insurance business, 
and he used to take my poems in to show his colleagues. <laughs> they were mostly about death. Uh, I can't quite imagine how that went over. But At what age were you writing about death? <laughs> Eight, nine. <laughs> really? Why do you think? That's, that's a little young to be. I had a melancholic side. I read a lot of Edna St. Vincent Millay. I think that was sort of contagious. But he was very he was very supportive of my writing. He was very supportive of my ambitions, not to just be a woman. And I think that was enormously important to me. And um, I went to Bryn Mawr College. At that time, most of the best colleges were women's colleges. And I was very drawn to Bryn Mawr. It seemed very beautiful to me and very intense intellectually. It had a tradition of feminism. Its its founder had been a first-wave feminist, although feminism was very amorphous to me then. It was, even then, very, very appealing. So I was very drawn to this, to this, little, this little school. Uh, near Philadelphia. Near Philadelphia, 500. What was it like students. to go from what I assume was co-educational high school to all-women college? Well, you know, it was... At that time, I kind of had the soul of a poet. I was always seeking to get away from the crowds. <laughs> and I found the New York City public high schools kind of terrifying, actually. And halfway through, uh, I, I went to a public, a well-known public high school in Brooklyn, Erasmus Hall High School. And my father had the good sense to see that it was very difficult for me. And he actually entered me without any discussion into an all-girls um, high school, so, ah. which I loved. So in fact, I, I went from an all-girls high school to this all-women's college, um, and I loved it. It was the, um, the absence of certain forms of competition, the way in which I experienced it, and I think many women young women experienced it, was as a chance to really work, to really think, to be an intellectual, to be a scholar, not to have to pretend that you didn't, that you didn't care uh, about ideas, about literature. Oh, you mean in a co-educational <laughs> yeah. scene you might have had to pretend? Well, you know, I think this, this was, don't forget, this was the mid-50s. Um, the gender division of labor, I think, extended all the, way, all the way down, the ways in which girls saw themselves, the way they saw their future, the way they saw their relationships to men, to boys, etc., uh, to teachers, uh, I think in co-ed schools. It was much more difficult to be seen as significant by male teachers. Or is it Bryn Mawr? Um, the male faculty saw the female students as their legacy. But you implied that... Um you know, when you're around guys, that maybe being an intellectual wasn't sexy. Right. Well, I was actually thrown out of a, I was thrown out of a fraternity of Penn one night for preaching to them about their, about their wayward ways. You were at a mixer of some kind. <laughs> yeah, I went. I was at a fraternity party that I had that I was invited to by some guy, who I was sort of casually seeing, and I made myself so obnoxious. And they asked me to leave. So that was my my experience uh, with coeducational institutions. But it was wonderful for me to be at a small women's college. And then when I was halfway through, I began to seriously see this boy whom I had 
known since I was 13, who was, he was at Harvard. And we got married when I graduated from Bryn Mawr. And it was, that, that was very interesting because at the same time, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I knew I wanted to have a career. My father, who was the most important person then in my life, uh, although he thought I could do absolutely anything I wanted to do, it was also utterly clear to him that, of course, I would marry and have children. Mm. Uh, there was no way <laughs> that I was going to be an important woman <laughs> but not be a wife and mother. So I think I wanted to get that problem out of the way. And it, it did indeed free me to, um, to see that part of my life that problem of my life, uh, the place where Jane Austen's novels always end. With marriage. <laughs> With marriage. Uh, <laughs> that is settled. You got that out of the way. So that then I could go on to have the life that Victorian women started to have in, in fiction. Did you make a good choice in marriage? I did. Um, my, my husband was, was a really wonderful. He was a wonderful person. We were very well suited. He had several careers as a television writer and producer, and then as a publisher. But he always wanted to write, and ultimately we came here to UCSC so he could drop out and write, and I took the job of Dean of Humanities and Arts. That was in 78. Mm. Well, that sounds like a fun career, though, writing for television, producing television. I think it was a great career, uh, but it was also... Very, very intense. There's no tenure when you're a television writer. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so, so he was always on the ed- it was it was it was always on the edge a little bit. I knew that your husband was named Sig, oh. so I did a little search on Sig <laughs> Moglin and found a few things that he produced, including Anais Nin's Diary for TV, Gogol Diary of a Madman, Falstaff in Shakespeare and Verdi. Sig had what he thought of as the best job in television for many years. He wrote and then produced and wrote a Sunday morning television show for CBS, which was its window dressing. It's, it was supported by CBS, um, no advertising. What was it called? Camera 3. And he was free to do anything he wanted. He just did all kinds of things. He actually, when Joseph Heller's Catch-22 came out, it really started with a thud. She had read it, thought it was wonderful, and did a half hour, a half hour <laughs> dramatization of it. Uh, and on the day that he did it, Simon and Schuster decided, well, they would do a full page advertisement. And that was the beginning of, Cat, of the success of Catch 22. Heller always thought that it would never have taken off had it not been for that program. And that it was quite extraordinary. So you were doing literary scholarship. You were getting a PhD in literature and then teaching literature. And your husband was doing what sounds like, at least occasionally, literary TV. Right. Uh, I got my PhD at Yale and got a job at NYU. And Sig was working in New York. So we moved, we moved to Manhattan. And along the way, we had three children, um, all of them born while I was a graduate student. So, uh, <laughs> you know, now I think back on it, and I can't quite imagine how that was possible. I finished my degree. I had this job. I wrote 
books, and I raised these three children. I guess one had a lot of energy. <laughs> did it delay your dissertation to have three kids during that stretch? It did delay my dissertation a bit. It took me, I think it took me five or six years to finish my dissertation. But it was great because I had a cohort of friends from Yale who were all teaching in New York, and we would meet every couple of weeks to talk about some literary thing or some critical work together. And that kind of kept me part of that world. But, um, yeah, I used to, uh, I, I, I had a little a subscription at a little private library in New York, and I used to get help with the children, and I would go there and write for three hours every afternoon. And I just had to, I had to sit down and I had to start writing. I had, there wasn't much time to fool around. Writing stymies some people. It obviously didn't, it didn't intimidate you? No, I've never, I've, I love writing. Um, writing is a, writing is a deep pleasure for me. I've always loved, I've always loved to write. I, I think I became a better and better writer over the years. Most importantly, um, when I wrote my book on Charlotte Bronte, my husband would come home at night and he would edit what I had done that day. And he was a superb editor, um, as it turned out. And um, that was a great gift to me. I mean, he would come home tired from work and we would get the children to bed and then we would sit with what I had written. And it was really through Sig's ear, through his questions, that I learned how to edit my own work, that I learned how to be a rigorous self-editor. And even now when I read that book, the, I have an image of those evenings um, sitting together, and I remember, I remember what, what language he suggested. I remember how we would discuss it, and sometimes really I would get quite mad. It was intense, very, very intense. But I think after that book, I like my writing. So you went from um, Bryn Mawr to Yale to get your PhD. And Yale has long been considered, you know, really one of the real centers of literary criticism in this country. And I think at the time you went there, what was the dominant school of criticism? Well, well the, when I went there, the new criticism was the prevailing religion of the literary <laughs> critics at Yale. Uh, and Yale was generally acknowledged to be the, certainly among the two or three best uh, English departments in the country. I mean, there was only one woman teaching in it. And there were all of these white men, uh, some of them Southerners, like Cleanth Brooks, William Wimsatt. There were women in the graduate program, but these guys all acted as though they had never seen a woman before. And when I arrived at Yale, I had a fellowship. I had at my entrance meeting with the head of the graduate program, whose name was Talbot Donaldson. He was a Chaucer, Chaucer specialist. And he was very upset that I had gotten married over the summer. And he said, what do you expect to do with your fellowship? And I said, well, I'm going to do the same thing that everybody else does with it. And what's, what's the difference with men? He said, we expect the women to keep our men happy. What are you going to do to keep our men happy? And it was a joke. And he was slapping his knee. 
and I went home and cried. But it was again and again, this sort of situation at Yale was quite fascinating. When I got pregnant, they all said how sorry they were I was going to leave. I had no intention of leaving, and that was fine. I never felt discriminated against in the sense that I was always funded. Um, I never felt anybody graded me unfairly. I think that my letters of recommendation must have been excellent because I had several offers of jobs when I finished. It was a kind of double meaning to it. I was clearly different as a woman. I was different as a married woman. But they also gave me my due. You said when, the, when that uh, Chaucerian guy made the, the joke, you went home and cried. So you think the joke was meant to belittle you in a way? Well, <laughs> if it wasn't intended to belittle me, <laughs> he certainly didn't have the good sense to understand that it would be belittling. Well, that, I th- I'm thinking that's, that's really well, the, the case. This guy probably had no grasp I, of why I, such a thing would... I, I don't know. Stupidity is no excuse. <laughs> I wasn't making excuses. I, I think it's part of the culture. I think that's the point. I think that, that there was always a little bit of a flirtatious thing. There was a mm. little bit of a condescending thing. There was a little pride. There was a daddy thing. But none of it was the same as what it was for the men in the program, for whom it was far more straightforward. Some did well, some did badly, but they weren't being always looked at and having to prove, having to prove themselves. But, but it, wasn't only, it wasn't only being a woman that could be a problem. There was also a lot of anti-Semitism in the... In the uh, in the in the faculty at that time, and of course there were no there were no black students, there were no Latinos as far as I can remember. So, you know, it's a pretty pretty small segment of the population. Now you say uh, the new criticism was the religion at the time, and Cleanth Brooks you mentioned he's very famous, one of the founders of the new criticism. Uh, wasn't Robert Penn Warren also at Yale too? He he was at Yale. I didn't I didn't work with Penn Warren, but the ideology of the New Criticism was that in order to understand the text, you only needed to read the text. That the writer, the society, the history, none of it was relevant. That the text yielded up its meaning. This is an interesting ideology. It was very much part of the fifties culture. Very obviously a historical, uh, not at all attentive, as I've just said in another way, to different cultures, to questions of difference. This this sense of the text as a kind of holy object, a sacred object. But the training that one got, and it was a kind of training in close reading, was invaluable. I mean, one you know, I have to say that. That was wonderful. I mean, it made one as a reader, as a reader of everything, a reader not just of, of poetry, but a reader of, of texts more broadly, a reader of people, a reader of the world, attentive to detail. Mm-hmm. And that was extraordinary. But of course, then in the 60s, all of a sudden, everybody, <laughs> except <laughs> probably these new critics, everybody came to see how deeply texts were embedded in their culture how deeply they spoke to the moment, to the writer, to the, to the differences that out of which they had been produced. Um, and the, then, of course, the new criticism became a kind, very ancillary aspect, I think, of literary training. So I'm trying to picture you 
And from what I know of your literary approach, it's the exact opposite. I mean, you are you care about history, you care about biography, you care about gender, all of these things that the new criticism considered irrelevant to the pristine text. Did you chafe against that? Well, no, because when I was at Yale, that was just fine with me. I was very much a product of the 50s. Ah. And um, I love close reading. I thought it was just marvelous. I, like so many people in my generation, I, I came alive in the 60s. I came alive politically and socially. I found feminism. Um, I worked on civil rights. And all of a sudden, of course, one began to read texts differently. I was reading the world differently. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I, I, I don't know, after maybe 66, a, a female colleague of mine at NYU, said she was going to teach a course on women's literature. And I said to her, why would you do that? Who is it you're going to teach? <laughs> so I was pretty retrograde, uh, but not more, retrograde, not more retrograde than most people. But it's a sign, I think, of how, just how dramatic the change was and that made the teaching of literature incredibly exciting. Now you could really read literature as a representation of the culture in ways that were very different from how how I had seen it before. And relevant to everything else that was going on. Utterly relevant to everything else that was going on. And, the, and all of a sudden we understood the canon was no longer the great list of books that one had to read. The canon was the collection of texts one had to question. One had to ask why this canon? Oh, isn't it interesting? There are almost no women in these in this canon. There's were, no people of color in this canon. Was at least, say, Jane Austen or yeah. the Bronte sisters yeah. or um, George Eliot. You you've named it. You you Jane Austen, the Brontes, and George Eliot. That was it. And Virginia Woolf. Right. Those were the women you encountered mm. in an English lit program. Mm. When did you first think of yourself as a feminist? When did you first use a term like that for yourself? Well, let's see. Um, I remember reading de Beauvoir in college, and it was extraordinary. But I had no other context in which to put it. But it wasn't really until the mid-60s that that started to come together. I mean, for me, the first thing that I became aware of was the civil rights movement. And I became quite active in the civil rights movement, as active as I could become. Um, I, I worked in the Harlem Corps. Uh, the Committee the Congress of, of Racial uh, Congress of Racial Equality, yeah. Um, and I did a little work with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party when they would come through New York. I had friends who went to Mississippi. And so that was sort of where I started my political activity in the mid and late 60s. And it was at that point that feminism that we began, I'm sure you're familiar with the story, everybody sort of knows that story about how a kind of misogyny in the civil rights movement began to be noticeable. Oh, in the anti-war movement and other and, and the anti And definitely in the anti-war movement as well, which I was also very, very active in. It was an incredible moment in that your politics, your civil rights politics, anti-war politics, beginning of feminist consciousness, 
all of that began to come together, plus a real revolution in the field of literary criticism. And I'd like to remind listeners that this is the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, and my guest today is the literary critic Helene Moglen, talking about her life as a teacher, a scholar, and a feminist. We'll get right back to the interview after this. Okay, let's return to today's interview with Helene Moglen. And when we left off, Helene was uh, describing how various 60s-era political movements, especially the women's movement, were transforming the way that she and other feminist scholars looked at literature. And she says that new feminist consciousness was also affecting faculty life on campus. It's also true how parties changed in that period, in the 60s. I mean, academic parties, whereas we women who were professionals up until, I'd say, the middle 60s, we would go to parties and we would seek out the men at the parties, never talking to the wives of the academics, right? So the wives were in a little category of their own, scorned, of course, by the men, but also scorned by the women, the important women, the academic women. Well, as that changed towards the end of the 60s and the 70s, you would talk to anybody but the men at a party. (laughs) And the wives of these guys would really be, they were the people you were interested in. You wanted to know what their stories were. You wanted to see all of that world from their eyes. I mean, so it didn't only change in texts. It changed everywhere. So the highfalutin academic woman deigns to talk to the housewife or becomes interested in the housewife because she's... Not just deigns to talk, but is genuinely interested. Right, but because the housewife has become ennobled in a way, she's (laughs) suffered the... uh, you know, she's the ultimate victim of, of sexism and all of that. Well, that's true. That's true. But I would also say, look, I also had three children, right? So what I was able to see at that point, I had a lot in common with these women. It wasn't just that I was inhabiting a superior place and now I was condescending. I was saying, well, wait a minute, you know, what's it like for you as a mother? Mm. You know, this is what it's like for me as a mother. I mean, there was this, this really quite amazing shift that in perspective at that moment, which was a kind of corrective, I think. Yeah, but there there was now a kind of political intellectual framework in which a whole group of people, a huge swath of people, became interesting. Right. That's right, and also the relation of white women to women of color, uh, and of heterosexuals to lesbians. I mean, these were burning issues in the women's movement, in the academic women's movement. And women of color did see that the dominant women's movement in the academy was a white women's movement. And so there was real struggle there Mm. at, at a personal level, at a curricular level, pedagogically. I mean, and that was what made that was what made teaching so amazing. In that, it was really about life. It was really about what seemed to be happening in the world, and it was about changing. Nothing seemed fixed in quite the same way, mm. and things seemed open. For me, it made the authority of the university look a lot different. You know, when I was at NYU. 
they had taken a group of uh, young people at the same time, all of us, just with our PhDs. There were six or seven of us. And we were all anti-war. We were all civil rights. It was emerging feminism. And we weren't just changing the world. We were also changing the department. So we tried to dump the department chair. <laughs> well, that didn't work out too well. Six of us were not given tenure at the same time. We were just, as they say, terminated. And I wound up in the provost's office crying. I mean, I was an excellent teacher. I had my first book finished. How could they not be giving me tenure? And he said, Helene, what could you possibly have thought would happen? (laughs) Well, I think it was a sign of how heady that moment was, Mm. how much we felt. We had right on our side... We knew what was right. Mm. We were burning, and we weren't going to sit still for it. I, I think academia in those years um, in popular culture was depicted as, yes, an incubator of radical ideas, but also a bloody mess of infighting as <laughs> as groups defined themselves along identity lines and, and new identities were recognized and battle lines, new battle lines were drawn, you know, splitting groups that seemed to be united before. And uh, uh, you lived it. I mean, I'm, I'm curious yeah. to know how much of that, that image is correct. See, I would not use the term a bloody mess. I would say it was fascinatingly complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so the battles were okay with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, they felt real. When I went to Purchase. This is a... Uh, SUNY Purchase. State it was, University of New it, York at Purchase. Exactly. Yeah. And it was a brand new school. Yeah. I was the second person hired in the humanities and it was actually based on UC Santa Cruz. That's another part of the story. But mm. but when I got to to purchase, by the second year, the women who were there across divisional lines, humanities, social sciences, and sciences, there were eight of us who formed a consciousness raising group. And we met every two weeks and spent two hours consciousness raising and an hour planning how to make this university. And I was the You've first... You've got to tell our listeners what you mean by consciousness raising. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's a, peri- uh, that's a period term. No one talks about that anymore. Okay. What did that consist of? Well, consciousness raising, the idea was that the personal was political and that if we were really as feminists going to change the world, going to make things different, we had to understand sexism at every level. And it was all very well to think that you could look at it in the university or you could look at it in the workplace, etc. But you had to start at home. What was happening inside you, in your relations with your husband, with your partner, with your children? How did sexism structure your life? What were your assumptions? You know, it sounds pretty mundane and even silly. Who did the housework? Who did the... Well, it's not so mundane and silly. It's still going on, right? Who did the housework? Who takes care of the children? Whose work is more important? How do you deal with conflict? Uh, What is your sex life about? Uh, Who's entitled there? And that's what we were doing. We were sitting there and we were pushing each other. We were really asking hard questions of ourselves and... In this group that I was in, we started out with one lesbian, 
And by the time we were finished, the great with our group years later, most of the women had left their marriages and become lesbians. Some of them then went back in later years into relationships with men. But, I mean, this was serious stuff. And a lot of the pain that women felt about how they had been treated, whether they had been abused or what their relation to parents was, to family. It was an amazing moment. Um, You came to UC Santa Cruz uh, as Dean of the Humanities, I think you said in 1978. Um, I actually came as Dean of Humanities and Arts. Oh, Dean of Arts and Humanities, or Humanities and Arts. Uh, in 1978, and uh, from what I know of the campus, it was in the middle of or well into a kind of identity crisis. It had sprung up in the 1960s, the mid-60s, as part of a wave of new experimental, mm-hmm. uh, super liberal, mm-hmm. adventurous institutions. Mm-hmm. It, it actually had um, a lot of prestige in its early days. It, it attracted some very interesting and sometimes famous faculty members. Mm-hmm. Um, it had uh, a really large number of applications. It was very hard to get into. And then as the 60s passed and some of that spirit waned, by the 70s, enrollments had fallen off. It came to re- be regarded, I think, uh, to be crude about it as kind of a hippie summer camp, um, you know, uh, who wants right. to go to that place right. anymore? I'd rather get into Berkeley. Right. At one time, UCSC was even more desirable than Berkeley, That's I think, right. for a stretch of time. Yes. Um, and so you came um, partly with a mandate to to clean things up a little bit. Yeah, I was new sheriff in town. That's right. I, that, I think that's a that's a fair statement. I think that that there was a sense on the part of the administration and many faculty um, that the campus had to be cleaned up. That this Uncle Charlie summer camp, as it had described yes. by <laughs> some people, <laughs> had to stop. That this experimentation was over, and now we had to get down to serious business, and I think implicitly be more like Berkeley. Uh, It was very painful for some faculty uh, who were very committed to pedagogical experimentation, intellectual differences of various sorts, and an increasing professionalization, an increasingly serious kind of academic structure. Yeah. And so that was hard. So you... um hardly a conservative mainstream type of person, <laughs> a progressive, maybe even a radical thinker, um, came to this place and were part of the conservatizing, traditionalizing of, of it? That's right. And, and, and what did yeah. people think of you? Well, right, that's just, you're, I think you're, really, you're asking very hard questions. What did I think of myself? I mean, I could also see, and I don't know that we have time to go into that, I could also see how the campus had been weakened. But were you regarded in attempting to fix some of these problems as um, you know, a tool of the establishment? Hated. I was hated by so many people. <laughs> I was hated because I was a woman. I was hated because I was trying to clean up the college. I was seen as, uh, because I really believed that if I was an administrator, I wanted to get things done. I was seen as too interventionary. I mean, there were many ways in which I, who had was used to really being loved, all of a sudden I really found myself quite disliked by many people. I was a kind of dragon lady. Um, and I was young, and I, I was not politically very sophisticated. I didn't really know how to navigate very well in that world. So how did you cope with it psychologically? 
Was it hard on you, or are you uh, yes, that tough? Yes, of course. It was very. <laughs> it was very. It was very hard on me. I think it was. It was very hard on me. But but you know, um, I was also getting things done. Program after program was really transformed, hmm. and I do take credit for that. <laughs> we haven't talked about your ideas, uh, your scholarship, you know, your your literary studies and criticism yet, and I really want to do that. And I also wanted to ask about something that is very well understood in academia, but outside. I don't think people necessarily know what's meant when they hear the phrase feminist theory. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a good place to start would be with a book you wrote called The Trauma of Gender, A Feminist Theory of the English Novel. Right. Uh, is it possible to summarize your ideas? Yeah, yeah. I think in I, short form. I think I, I think I can. In my book, *The Trauma of Gender*, I was trying to argue from a feminist point of view what had become a sort of truism in the way in which the development of the English novel had been viewed. The English novel, which emerged in the 18th century, was seen to have um, emerged in relation to individualism and the emergence of the middle classes. So a new sense of the significance of the individual that he or she was in some way the center of of his or her world, as opposed to a sense of the self as fitting into a hierarchy into which one had been born, a sense that one could make who one was, that one could change uh, over a lifetime, that one could move from one class to another. But what I w- argued was that as important as class was to the emergence of the novel, equally important was a change in gender relations, and that instead of class being the crucial term that determined difference, that if you were middle class, everything followed from that. If you were upper class, everything about your life followed from that. If you were poor, everything in your life followed from that. Beginning in the late 17th century, what was crucial was whether you were a man or a woman because class became very flexible. But the gender division of labor became much more firmly ensconced so that the novel emerges not just uh, to elaborate uh, differences of class, but very centrally emerges to represent what it means to be a man or a woman. And then I take that one more step and say that on one level you have realist novels, of realist narratives, realist perspectives, which represent what we think of as social differences between men and women, the way in which men and women exist in the world. And Jane Austen is a wonderful example of a realist writer, uh, as, as is George Eliot. But the, at the same time that you have this fuller and fuller and fuller elaboration of the psychology and the social and, and, and social differences of middle-class uh, men and women, you also have the questioning, the radical questioning of what this value system means in texts that I call fantastic texts, texts that question these values of 
maleness and femaleness, heterosexuality as opposed to a more fluid uh, sexuality, family structure as opposed to other kinds of relationships. So I try to show the ways in which novels that have been seen as realist have this very strong, fantastic subtext in which even as values, middle-class values are being asserted, gender values are being asserted and structured and insisted upon, they're also being radically questioned. So that was the argument of my book, and it was feminist theory in this sense, as you can see, from a feminist perspective, from a female perspective, from a, I'm questioning the normative values, which are from a masculine perspective, which just see gender difference as part of the picture, but not central Mm. to the picture. So Mm. what feminist theory does is to put women, and, and you have to sort of put women in quotes because women are also not just one thing, <laughs> but women at the center of how you see history. So the, the well-established idea that the novel originated, what, in the late 17th century? Well, roughly? it depends. You know, some people start, say it starts with Bunyan. Some people say it starts with Defoe. I would say, with, you know, roughly speaking, yes, the late 17th or the early 18th century. Really and the early and that's century. a time when mobility across class lines was becoming possible. Before that, you were born a serf or a vassal exactly. or whatever else. You lived out your life in that stratum, and it was ordained by God, and there was nothing to question. Exactly. The novel comes about at a time when you start to form your own identity and a lot of questions about how you make a self. Exactly. You know, a lot of <laughs> novels about selfhood, you know, people right. becoming full human beings. Right. Novels of coming of age and picaresque novels and things like that. So, but you're saying that all of that, of course, ignored gender differences. That was almost always about men. Yes, yes. Now, now give us an example of putting women at the center, let's say, in one of those early novels. Mm-hmm. How would you do that? So, so for example, Robinson Crusoe, which probably yeah, most yeah. people have some some knowledge of. And, and it only has... You know, two men in it, right? Well, there are no, but there are no women in <laughs> exactly, it. Exactly, right? that's it. It's just two right. guys. There, there are no women in it. There's, there's Crusoe, and then there's his good man Friday. Right. Well, what's really fascinating as you look at that novel is to see how Friday is feminized, how Friday is the feminine black other, and how he's cast in all of those female roles. Now, before he comes on the scene. You also have various ways in which Crusoe constructs his world as male and female. The sea is, is, is feminine. And so that there's a kind of gender consciousness. But, of course, centrally, what you see is how Crusoe is constructing himself, or Defoe is constructing him, as a male individual. And that his maleness, his, his individualism, his centrality, he is, after all, on a desert island. That is the metaphor for the individual, for the male individual, a man on a desert island, (laughs) totally self-sufficient, totally able to make his world. Now, that is a man. And then when you you see how Friday serves as ways for him to negotiate a world that is not only 
male, but in which the male remains utterly separate, utterly independent. Now, it's very interesting to compare Robinson Crusoe to two other novels of Defoe's, one Roxanne and one Mal Fanders, which has at the center women, mm-hmm. both whores. The only way that Defoe could imagine an autonomous, independent woman was as a whore, a woman who claimed her sexuality and who was in no way tied into the familial, domestic structure of his time. Um, I mean, the ways in which he defines their individualism is so different when one reads those novels than the way in which Crusoe is defined. So you really do have in Defoe a wonderfully interesting definition in realism of the male and female selves Mm. as they exist in the social world as autonomous, self-dependent beings. Although, of course, if you look closely enough, you see, of course, how they're not, right? Mm. How they're dependent on others to support and maintain them. That image of the male as um, as alone, self-sustaining, self-reliant, you know, to use Everson's term. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what an image, yeah. uh, you know? It reminds me of a, a phrase from a John Updike essay when he was talking about male friendship and, and the kind of loneliness that uh. there is sometimes even in the hanging out of men with each other. He said, the male desert in us is coterminous. <laughs> well, I, that's really wonderful. And I think it's also interesting how in all of these books of the films, none of his characters are capable of friendship. I mean, the women aren't capable of friendship either. That kind of, in, which is different from the ways in which women are often portrayed, obviously, Jane Austen, etc. But there you do have a vision of what this emergent mm. individualism is about. Mm. At the same time that you have undercurrents of this kind of hallucinatory, fantastic questioning of this, which also comes through in Crusoe's relation to Friday, which mm-hmm. is also a very haunted relationship and a very ambivalent relationship. Now, you said you, you talked about the two kinds of literature or narrative, um, realist and fantastic. And actually, you gave a talk recently, which prompted me to invite you onto this show and talk, which which made that comparison also. And you especially concentrated on Frankenstein, uh, published in 1813, a woman writer, Mary Shelley, sometimes thought it was the first sci-fi novel. Tell us about these issues as they apply to Frankenstein. Well, let me just step back a minute, and, sure. I, and I'm going to do this really, I hope, very <laughs> neatly. Uh-huh. Um, in the realist and the fantastic in narratives, and when I talk about narratives, I don't just mean fiction. We can also say storytelling of all sorts, storytelling in history, in anthropology, in newspapers, on television. In these different kinds of narratives, in the realist narrative, what you have is the relation of the self to others. It can be problematic and psychological and multi-layered, but nevertheless, it's the relation of the self to others in that world. In the fantastic, it's always about the relation of the self to the self. That's all about a form of self-awareness that develops in the modern period and that the novel represents. As an example of how 
complicated and interesting. This relation of self to self is you think of yourself looking in the mirror, right? And there's the you who's looking, and there's the you that you're looking at. And those two selves can never be brought together. So the self, as soon as it becomes self-aware, self-reflective, is divided. Hmm. It's always divided. We are never able to be whole. So that's the condition that fantastic narratives are always concerned with. The split self, which is always a doubled self. Okay, so Frankenstein is a story about that division of the self. Frankenstein's monster is everything that Frankenstein has to repress in himself, which is the humanist in himself, the maternal in the self, the poet in the self, everything that he represses in order to become the scientist who wants to create a race of people who will see him as their creator. And of course, this self that he represses, who he denies, who he refuses to acknowledge, haunts him and ultimately destroys him. Now there's a very elegant little story of what we do to ourselves through our refusal to explore, to know, to honor ourselves, and what the effect of repression is. <clears throat> where does gender come into to Frankenstein? So Frank, and here's another, um, you're such a good interviewer, Robert. So Frankenstein is, is always seen as if it's his first science fiction, and it's seen as a story about a male scientist and his monster. But as soon as you ask the question, wait a minute, wait a minute, I mean, this is a man who is reproducing a monster. He gives birth to his monster. There is a birth scene. And what you see then, once you say, well, wait a minute, gender is actually important here. What does this mean? Then you look back and you see how the crucial moment when Frankenstein leaves his paradise home, where he is a much-loved child, blah, 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 his mother dies. And the death of the mother is, in the fantastic story, the death of the female in the self. So that what you see is that Frankenstein, Frankenstein's fantasy of reproduction is to become the mother, to take on the power of the mother, but to take it on as a god. I mean, it's a story of a male narcissist, right? He takes on the power of the mother, but he doesn't just have a baby. <laughs> mm. He has a race, mm. <laughs> the beginning of a race uh, of men who will adore him. So it's a fascinating story that Mary Shelley, I think, is very self-consciously telling about her husband, Percy Shelley, who was a male narcissist par excellence, mm. and what it means for a man, what this gender division of labor means. I mean, Mary Shelley had five pregnancies, four of her children died. Uh, three of those pregnancies were before she and Shelley could marry because he left his young wife with two children to go off with Mary Shelley. Her story is a story of illicit pregnancies, of the death of her children. And at one point, the monster says, I am an abortion. He sees himself as having been so spurned by Frankenstein, so spurned by the world, 
that he sees himself as an abortion. And I thank you there. You have just this extraordinary moment in which Mary Shelley speaks from the body of a woman. So what you've just said about Frankenstein and the fantastic novel applies in various ways, you think, to, to other so-called fantastic novels of that, that period? Which... Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean and, it, 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 and it's more than that. So the fantastic tradition, you can see it. Which would include <clears throat> what other books? You think? Okay, so you see Frankenstein, you see Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you see Dracula. I mean, these are the mm. centrally mm. Um, uh, fantastic novels in the 19th century. Ryder Haggard She, which is probably less well-known. But you also have fantastic elements in writers like Dickens, very strong fantastic elements. Yeah, I was but, wondering where he falls. Is he realistic or fantastic? Well, he's essentially, of course, he's, he's known as a novelist. Social realist. Social realism. Yeah. But he's, his novels are full of doubles, and the doubles are the others, just this sort of divided and doubled self, right? So Dickens, like Dostoevsky, is full of such characters and such uh, problems. Fantastic. Okay, but then what really is fascinating is that the fantastic effectively becomes the dominant form with modernism, where modernism ceases to see as centrally interesting the self's relation to others. What matters is the individual perspective, the self. As you move from moder- through modernism, Joyce, uh, Virginia Woolf, Faulkner, into postmodernism, you have the emphasis increasingly on subjectivism, the mind, the relation of the self to the self. So that you could say that the fantastic narrative becomes more and more central. Mm -hmm. And you can look at it, you know, you look at Mad Men, you look at Dexter, Dexter who has, on the television series, who has his dark passenger. And each of his stories has this kind of double. Sometimes they're men, sometimes they're women, but they're himself. Mm. They're himself whom he's struggling with. You're reminding me of comic books, too. Oh, comic books, definitely. When I used to teach a course in the Fantastic at NYU, I used to start with Batman and Superman. Uh, but psychoanalysis also tells. Psychoanalytic theory is a fantastic story. It's all about the relation of the self to the self. So this distinction is very crucial. And for me, it explains everything. I read the newspaper, I watch television, I go to the movies. I'm always thinking about the interplay of these two narratives. All day long, all day long, we're switching back and forth from a realist perspective to a fantastic perspective. In studying literature and, you know, bringing gender in in a way that it had been ignored, pushed to the margins for so long, has it changed your idea of masculinity and femininity, uh, of men and women? Absolutely, because it's also, what's also true of the fantastic is it's all about gender play, uh, blowing up gender. I mean, it's all about homosexuality. It's all about gender indeterminacy. It's a refusal of sexual roles. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde is, in many ways, a homosexual novel. Uh, uh, Stevenson was probably gay. And it's very interesting when you read the novel in that way. Dracula, that's about a floating sex gender system that has nothing to do 
right? And it's fascinating how interested people are in vampires now, what the vampire, you know, why the vampire has taken hold. And of course, it's been much cleaned up. Uh, uh, in these stories for yeah, kids. Yeah, so what is, the, we're in love with vampires and zombies now. What's all that about? Well, the zombie <laughs> is very problematic. I, I mean, the vampire I can really relate to. That's all about sexuality and gender refusal and, and refusal of, of, of rules, social rules. The zombie is a kind of fear, I think, of being emptied out. After the vampire tosses you aside, what you are, you're a shell. And I think, I, I don't know, and this is maybe out there, but I am thinking that the fascination with zombies of young people does maybe related to this relation to the virtual, maybe related to a loss of intimacy, a loss of connectedness, and the loss of a sense of empowerment. So that the the fear of, of the zombie, of being a zombie, is really a, a fear of being reduced to a shell of a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm. In a society in a, in a society in which there is not humanity. Mm. I don't know if this seems like it's out of left field, but um as a feminist, uh a feminist critic and a political activist did raising three boys did that did that i'm very fascinated about the way in which raising people of the opposite gender whether it's men raising daughters or uh women raising sons changes the relationship to the to that gender it was very interesting to me to raise three boys and of course i wanted very much to have a daughter which i when i started out on this whole life project, I, I didn't want to have daughters because it just felt to me as though women's lives were just too hard, it was too complicated, men were so privileged, I would rather go with that. But then over the years, I really wished that I had had a daughter. But it was fascinating to me to raise sons and to try to bring them up in a world in which they question gender values more. And it's also true that we do relate to people as male and female, we also relate to them as people. And as people we like and don't like that have very little to do with their gender. And I think it took a while probably for feminists to get there. I mean, the early wave of the second wave, uh, there was a lot of harshness in relations to men. Did you know feminists during... You know, when you say second wave, we mean that wave of feminists in the 1960s. 60s. 60s. Who had kids and were disappointed that they had boys? Oh, yeah. Well, and the, what happened as a result not, of that? Were, it was even worse than that. I do know women who were so heartbroken that they, especially women who knew they were only going to have one child and who thought they would only have one child, it, it was terrible. And it was also true of meetings, some feminist meetings, if you had a male child, you couldn't bring it to the meeting. Oh, no. I mean, it was, there was lunacy. There was lunacy. I've got to find some of those guys and ask them what that was like. Wow. Well, it is very... Look, in my generation, there were many... I have many friends who are lesbians who have raised boys. And and now they're they're in college or they're just out of college. And it would be very interesting <laughs> to talk. I mean, some mm-hmm. of them have... You know, some people have started talking about that. But it is extremely interesting. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in those cases where... A woman was 
saddened or shocked that she ended up having a boy and what became of that? What a s- Well, except that, you know, that's not uncommon. I think up until feminism, I think many women were very disappointed to have daughters. And you uh, look at whole societies, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> In which having daughters yeah, is, absolutely. A, is, a, yeah. is, a, is, is no a, doubt a tragedy. One of the things that feminism did was to, and one those consciousness raising groups, uh, many stories that women had to tell were about being rejected by never really cared about by fathers, uh, being socialized by mothers who were self-hating. So, yeah, I think there are different stories, but mm. I think it's inevitable, right? Mm. That Yeah, yeah. Helene, I've, I've read that you were working on or have worked on a novel. I was working on a novel. I don't know where you heard that. I was working on a novel. I had never written fiction. And and at one point after I retired, uh, my partner, and I'm with a woman now, had just gone through uh, breast cancer. And it was a very intense and emotional draining. And there was a lot I, I needed to work through, I think, although I wasn't aware at the time that that was why I wanted to write a novel. But I did, and I started to write it, and I wrote for several months, and I rather liked it, and I was fascinated doing it. I loved doing it. And then it was very interesting. It was a year ago. I put it aside when I was teaching my Gotha class last year, and when I finished with the class, I looked at it, and I thought, hmm, I'm really much better writing essays. Says, and I don't know what to do with this. I needed to do it, but... I've done it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've never looked at it again. Um, we mentioned your husband earlier, Sig. He he died. He died of a brain tumor. When? Uh, twelve years ago. Uh, you say you're with a woman now. That's right. That's, um, that's true. Was there a time in feminist circles when it was when it was cooler to be a lesbian? Yes, it was. I think when I. <laughs> In those heady days of, of uh, that feminist movement, I think all of us wished we were lesbians. <laughs> it was much cooler. <laughs> and it felt, although I think erroneously, it felt much easier to be with women. Men had come to be the problem, right? You know, then I think many women got together with women and they found out that women were also the problem. <laughs> but it was definitely. It was definitely cooler. What ideas are obsessing you these days, if I can use that word? Very good question. I need a project. I want a project. So I'm obsessed with now with figuring out what my next project is going to be, what I'm going to be working on. I, I, I sit down and write every morning, and I need to do that. So I need to know what I'm going to be writing. So I think aging, aging and writing... Oh, what obsessed me. Mm. Aging and writing. <laughs> Could aging be the next topic then? I've written about aging. I, I've written a very a piece I like about aging. What's it called? Aging and Transaging. And it was interesting. I wrote it for a conference that I sponsored for one of my research, for feminist research groups uh, called Bodies That Matter. It was a conference, and then we published a little book. And I wrote it for a popular audience. And then... Uh, I sent it to a journal, and they said, well, could you theorize this more? Which was exactly what I had wanted to do. And then I thought, well, it would be interesting. So I theorized it. Must we always theorize, though? 
I I must. I always am theorizing. That's how I'm. That's how I try to grasp the meaning of what I'm struggling with, and I'm always struggling with some meaning or other. <laughs> and do you feel like you get there? Do you do you say, okay, I really like this theory. I'm done. I really feel like I've explained. No, for it. me, it's just an ongoing, ongoing, ongoing process. I'm very. I have an optimistic way of being, and I love thinking, and I love playing with ideas. It's just an ongoing, ongoing, ongoing process. Well, thanks for sharing that process with me. Well, really. thank you. You are an excellent, you're an excellent interrogator. <laughs> Helene Moglin is Professor Emerita of Literature and Feminist Studies at UC Santa Cruz. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And you can always visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com. ¶¶